sisters, listen closely. Finding out he's the one can sometimes feel like traveling through a desert of uncertainty. I mean, every time you feel like you've reached an oasis, it ends up being a mirage. As your resident sister and friend, here are five common red flags that you need to steer clear away from. First up, if he's asking for your phone number straight off the bat, but not your dad's, well, that's a major red flag waving in your face. Next, if he's hitting you up with texts and calls late at night, you better believe he's not serious and chances are he won't respect your boundaries. Watch out for those put down disguised as sarcastic banters. You know, the ones that make you the butt of the joke. It's time to show him the door. And oh, if he's more interested in hearing himself talk than listening to what you have to say, girl, that's a sign you need to run in the opposite direction. And let's not forget the classic line, my ex was crazy. Yeah, right. If he's mouth-mouthing his ex left and right, chances are he's the one with the issues. And those are just the obvious red flags. Let's help you uncover what's really hiding underneath the surface with Vibe Check, the ultimate prompt card game for meaningful connections. Crafted with deep respect for Islamic traditions, Vitech goes beyond the surface, allowing you to discover the essence of your potential life partner's faith, character, and aspirations. With eight thoughtfully crafted categories and 135 thought-provoking questions, Vitech ensures a comprehensive understanding of your potential spouse, from values and ambitions to personal quirks and preferences. I mean, skip the surface-level discussions and dive straight into what truly matters. Visit our website, www.thedigitalstory.com now and take the first step towards finding your righteous partner. Your journey to marital bliss begins here. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's your girl, Kads Adar, and you're listening to the Digital Sisterhood Podcast. This week's episode is going to be a little different, you guys. It's going to be a little different. It's going to be a lot more special. This week's guest is, her name is Johara Lula. Um, and she talks about a very important topic and a very important, and not just an important story, but a beautiful story. Um, but this week, I'm not going to be narrating this story. Her sister will be. And you know who her sister, do you know who her sister is? It's Muna. Muna Productions, our executive producer on the Digital Story Podcast. Guys, honestly, this was basically the sisterly duo that we didn't know we needed, but we got. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil So I'm excited to listen to you guys. You're going to hear me regardless because um, I did do the interview, but I'm excited to hear it because I'm not going to hear the narrations until the day of. So enjoy, enjoy, and I'll see you guys, inshallah, next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is Muna Sheikh Omar. Before I start, um, I want to give a trigger warning. This episode talks about suicide and suicide ideation. So if you are not ready to hear any of that, you can take a break on this one. I want to start by saying that I'm actually honored to be able to be the, share this story with you. There was a meme on Instagram that basically summarized my experience as a kid. It said, um, I never thought my siblings had an actual life. They were just 
side characters to my story. And I feel like being an older sibling, that's something I completely understand. So when I say I don't remember much of Johara growing up, it's it's because I was really obviously busy living my main character life. But if I was to describe Johara growing up, she was this tiny kid with uh, like tiny, not in height, but like super skinny. And she had a, she always had like a big personality. She was the type of kid that, you know, would have like a photo shoot session with you and like be posing on the wall. And she was just sassy, you know, spicy personality. And I remember we always considered her the dramatic person in the family because she would always say things that were so out of pocket. Um, Some of her phrases that we coined were like, everybody hates me. Or one time she was like, when I grow up, I want to be a waiter. It was always something that would make the family, like everybody start laughing and soon become like a family joke. I remember her as the mood maker. Um, But she was also the one who always had this weird health stuff going on we never knew what was going on with her she would sometimes just faint out of nowhere she would have blackouts um whenever we were walking sometimes she would need help um we just knew her as the weaker kid uh one time like whenever we would go out on the bus and it was especially on windy days we had to literally hold her down otherwise she would be blown away by the wind i honestly saw her one time her backpack almost took her out And that was just accepted norms in our family. Everybody knew she was just a little bit weaker, you know, maybe needed some vitamin D. And although in hindsight, I remember these things kind of scared my mom, like now thinking about it as an adult, my mom always had this way of, you know, shifting perspectives. She would reframe certain things that happened to us and make it so that it wasn't like a harsh reality. I recall like when we used to come right like when we used to go on the bus like they'd start chanting like chocolate 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 like together and I remember not knowing why <laughs> like it was like I did not have I didn't clock that they were trying to make fun of our skin in my head I was just processing that when we come on the bus they start chanting this oh my god <laughs> and then so I literally like my, chocolate chocolate literally on the bus literally and i'm like i remember asking my mom I'm like oh this is happening what is like <laughs> like i don't know why they do that and my mom was like they're cheering you on so <laughs> smile like uh, and then <laughs> so here you have like People that are like, you know, pointing out what like our skin color. The intent of that is to make you feel ashamed of your skin complexion. But I was standing there, like, so I started smiling, like, as I go on the bus. <laughs> so it, had, it took away the, really the, the effect of that degradation, I guess, that they were you know, attempting you know, to have. That's funny. You know, that your mom, instead of your mom telling you they're making fun of your skin, just ignore them, she told mm. you they're celebrating your skin. Smile yeah. at them. <laughs> Yo, that is actually, that is like, that is the coolest thing. If you had to lie to your kid, a good lie looks like that. And also, when you're getting, like, when people try to put you down, it's kind of not effective if you're not reactive to it. So mm-hmm. Exactly. It exactly. takes away their gratification of it, so I feel like it was a very effective way to shut it down. The other thing that was unique about the way our mom kind of raised us was that we moved around a lot. And Jada was born in the United States. However, 
my mom wanted us to be in a Muslim country, so we moved to Syria. And then after that, we moved to Emirat. And even while we were living in those countries, we were moving almost every year. We lived in a different house. And so that kind of like nomadic lifestyle allowed us to be able to have an adaptable personality to environmental changes around us. And it kind of helped us grow in a unique perspective than someone who was who grew up with the same people, the same neighborhood, in the same school. And with moving every year in general, like that kind of change externally, I feel like in a way it grounded me to myself rather than feeling like I was disconnected with everything else. Everything else around me used to change, like my house changed, my schools changed, the people I talked to changed. And in a way, I feel like it redirected me and familiarized me with whatever, what the constant in my life was, which was me and Allah, like that connection with Allah that I had. So that's the benefit that I came to love about the way my mom raised us. So when Johara was about to start fourth grade, my mom tells us that we are leaving Shariqa. And we're going to be moving to where my dad was at the time, which is Minneapolis, Minnesota, United States. And whereas some kids may be scared to move to a new place, we were basically experts at that point. Luckily for us, Minneapolis, Minnesota is also known as like Little Muqtisho. So (laughs) even though we were going to a new country, we were still surrounded by Somalis. And our entire school was predominantly Somali, which made it easier for us to be able to learn the language quickly. Within the first year, Johar was able to be speaking fluently. But as we all know, when it comes to fourth grade and like middle school in general, there's a signature experience that almost everyone goes through. And it's called bullying. I feel like when I first attended school, in America, there was only things, there were specific things I was paying attention to, like being autistic, but diagnosed as an adult, the bullying aspects of school. When I came to realize these things were bullying were way past, uh, like when I was like, when I was in college reflecting back on my experiences, like I didn't really understand like certain things that people would do to make you feel bad about yourself, like particularly middle school, just I feel like middle school. People are a little, even like there's people that I, I'm friends with like now, but it's funny because middle school, I feel like people are really uh, a little malicious. Like some people that you go to school with, I was just more confused about the things that would happen when I say certain things. And I was just kind of like uh, p- processing things as like, this happened. This person said this, not as like, this is what they think of me or like, this is how they see me. I was like very disconnected with how I was being perceived. I was very much like, oh, I'm in a school. Hey, you're nice people. Oh, I'm going to learn the language. Uh, like, talk to people. Even, like, I feel like people that were rude to me, I would still ask them for, like, questions. Like, So, like, like so what's, okay, so basically the distincting factor was that, like, while somebody would have picked up social norms and recognized, oh, these people don't like you. Yeah. Uh, maybe not <laughs> talk to them. Maybe not share a pencil. <laughs> so you instead would be confused as to why they said that yeah and i think in result might look like kind of like uh, an airhead but in reality yeah. you just weren't <laughs> connecting 
what they were trying to express in their words and mm. then you would just turn and ignore and then again hang out with them or ask them a question or uh, yeah I would as engage if it didn't with happen. them like yeah they weren't uh, like trying to be exclusive or trying to like bully me the thing that helped is like i was just like yet again i'm not really re reactive to to those comments so like usually where somebody like if somebody tells you oh your teeth uh you're you have two big front teeth or your teeth are crooked like somebody might go cry about it mm -hmm. but then for me it was like this person is describing my teeth and then so i describe i described how their teeth look like to her. Yeah. and it's interesting because i was like like i was just very disconnected with that oh this is what they think of me when they're saying that it was just kind of like oh this person said these things okay so being neurodivergent um Johara just took her experiences as they are. She didn't really read into what was the reason that someone would be doing a certain action. It just was an experience. So if someone threw away all her stuff in the trash, it was just like, okay, they threw all of my stuff away in the trash. It's not about, oh, what do they mean by this? So it was very easy for her to carry on with her life when that happened. But there was a different type of bullying that was direct. It didn't hide behind implied things. It was words. Jada talks about a time when she was sitting in class. The teacher starts assigning people into groups. And she gets assigned into a group with two other girls. And one of the girls turns to the other girl and says, I don't want to be partners with her. She's dumb. And it was explicit way of saying, like, I don't want to work with you. And so, like, it was a very verbal way of, like, she communicated directly that she didn't, not only wanted to work with me, but also how she thought of, how she perceived my intellect. And so that's the first time where I was like, am I, because I didn't, at that time, like, by middle school, like, I had finished Quran, like, and I used to do well in school. So, I like, I didn't perceive myself as that. Like, I had other people in my life that perceived me otherwise right and so because I thought of myself as like not dumb I was like that emotionally hurt and I remember writing to the teacher like about it like in those the te them teachers that have those extra boxes they're like right in there if there's anything you can't tell me <laughs> directly what I wanted was to like at that time I wrote it so that it's like oh this person doesn't want me to be in their group and like you know, I could like work in another group or by myself. Wow! So you were you weren't even this you weren't even telling her to tell her. Upset. You were telling her, "Can you move me?" Yeah, so that I am removed from this discomforting this person. Cause I I felt in a way like I was har doing harm, and I remember going home that day and thinking about it, and like like you know I was not emotionally expressive like you won't see like me crying I look more nonchalant when I was younger and like especially with my facial expressions and when things like this happen it's like half the time I'm thinking about it I have to go process it the rest of the day and say that like oh my god you know they called me dumb am I dumb and then thinking of myself as dumb like like thinking that they thought of me as dumb while I thought otherwise was painful and so but I was like, you know what? Everyone can be smart. Like, mm, you know, and what? I'm dumb. And yeah. And what about it? And I feel like I almost feel like that is the origin of me. Like one of my coping mechanisms of dealing with like um, negative comments and like like 
getting through school at that time is like, you know what? And what's, and what's wrong about it? I'm ugly. Okay. I'm ugly. And when I perceived myself in those negative traits, like, I feel like, I feel like others perceiving me that way was just informative rather than like degrading. Does that make sense? Also, so for you, it was like Intel. It was like, okay. It's like somebody saying you're wearing a black shirt. At that time, I feel like the pain that comes from like hearing those things, it went away when I thought like when I just internalized it. When I was like, yeah, okay, I am that. So Johara joined the boat of a very common coping mechanism people have, which is if I hurt myself first, somebody else saying it to me doesn't hurt as much. So... I would take a picture of her or something. It was like, ugh, I hate my mouth. I hate myself. Uh, not I hate, she would say, I hate my mouth. I hate my teeth. I hate looking at myself. I'm so ugly, you know? Um, and it's things that just came out <laughs> naturally, I guess. It always used to jar me and like, I used to be like, what do you mean you, 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 you look ugly? Or what do you mean? Like, why, how do you casually just accept these things about yourself? Like, I was like, I always used to be like, the world is going to bully you. Why bully yourself? But actually, it was a form of protecting herself. And you know that phrase that Johar always used to say, everybody hates me? My mom used to always respond with an equally ridiculous statement, sarcastically. And she'd say, who loved you anyways? The sad thing is that Johar took that literally. I feel like that's when I was younger, I rid myself of that expectation because of how I process those words, even though that's not how it was intended. Like, like, you know, I was like, everybody hates me. Everybody, yeah. When I say everybody hates me, I was like, well, look at Jalo. You know, no, and, and your mom was being sarcastic. My mom was but being you sarcastic. Took, but you took it as like real. Like, oh, the, very okay. literal. Because for you, it was like a questioning hanging in the room. You're like, does people like, I think it might have been like, you're like, okay, that makes sense for all of this experience. Yes. You know I mean? It was like, oh, oh, that's why I wasn't being dang. treated so nicely and why I was experiencing this and that. Like, it was like the explanation. Like, and it was like, for me, it's like, dang, okay, I was looking at it wrong. Like, I know, but it's Like, I'm, I'm out of pocket for it. Like, <laughs> it was funny because it was like, I was like self reprimanding for, um, we're expecting that like and so but that's just like when i look at it overall like i feel like it manifested throughout yeah how well, I, yeah i saw yourself in mm-hmm, and how it affected my self-image and yeah, like your, and your what kind of relationships i yeah. built they don't tell you when you're younger oh yeah if you experience this and this and this this is should alarm you like this is should this thing shouldn't happen the other thing i dealt with was chronic pain for like and like having health issues and like having other health things that were undiagnosed that were just like my day-to-day like dealing with fatigue like all these other things that was just um in the background i want you when you're listening to the story um just to kind of notice how casually johara talks about pain um and that's something that's like a common thread when it comes to um her narrating her story about her pain it's like my sister says some of the most like you know crazy things in the sense of like it's a big deal 
but she says it in like a regular way because she's been experiencing it for so long and the thing is when you say it in a dramatic way people end up chastising you and that's what she ended up experiencing throughout her childhood people showed her how they treat people who show their pain the experiences that i had that made me hide it like my like all the things that i was experiencing at least with my health and stuff were particularly related to the reactions that i initially had when i shared when i was expressive about it so like when i experienced like if i couldn't stand for long periods of time i was having back pain and stuff how could you have back pain go, go like you're a young girl like you're fine like go get this or like if you're if i used to take it if i took a chair in the masjid to like if there was thought her prayer or something like that and i wanted to sit on a chair mm. it'd be mm. like aha like like you know those reactions Being over dramatic like, yeah they don't think they're saying something detrimental long term but like it's just not in their image of what like somebody like even like sick children like people don't attribute sick to them like they like uh even though there's a lot of children that grow up with like long-term health conditions that they have to manage from a young age but if it's not visible is, you're not sick exactly if it's not visible it's not sick also there's another i feel like a concept of like if you are not like incapacitated by it then it's not um serious here's the literal statement the statement that i took quite literally everybody like like we all everyone goes through this like this is something that we've been through everyone goes through this so i literally internalized that everyone i thought everyone was going through the same level of pain that i was experiencing and i was just being like um weak about it i thought oh i just need to stop like i need to stop acting up i started telling myself the things that people would say in reaction to me like which is oh allah like she's being dramatic oh she's doing this for attention so whenever I experienced pain and stuff and it was becoming more visible, I'm like, ah, stop this. Like, I would try to stop myself from crying. And then, like, I think I repressed a lot more and, like, told myself, oh, don't burden people with yourself. Like, like while well, like, and, like, you're, you know, your parents are already working hard and doing a lot for you. Like, don't add this on top of everything. And, you know, be quiet about it. Because everybody else is doing that. So why can't you? Is how I wow. <laughs> would like like gaslight myself. In a... The habit of hiding her pain and gaslighting herself continued for years. Johara was like a Oscar, I have to say Oscar worthy performance at hiding what was going on with her. In our family, she was like the one that everybody, she took care of everybody. She would always have a lot of friends, you know. So you would never, you would never think about the fact that she may be in pain. It was, it was, it was so unfathomable for me, you know, that someone who was so out there taking care of everybody would be in pain. Then sophomore year of college came. My mother was gone to Somalia with my two, my younger siblings. It was just me, my sister, and my dad in the house. And one night she wake, woke me up in the middle of the night. I think it may have been like 3 a.m., 2 a.m. And she says to me, Muna, um, can we go to the ER? In the most casual tone. 
I couldn't tell if she was joking or for real. She was like, yeah, I have a headache. And I couldn't sleep all night. This girl was the queen of, like, downplaying what was going on with her. She said it was a headache, but it was a migraine. Imagine being in pain to the point where you think, like, regular pain medication is not doing you anything. I have to go to the ER. And for me, it was the first time that I actually got to glimpse some of the pain that she's been living with. I remember one time I I asked her, are you okay? Are you in any pain? And she says to me, casually, she says, when I'm always in pain, it's just sometimes it's more bearable than others. Like majority of times, like background pain playing. And I was like, are you, are you talking about your pain? Like some background music, like sometimes it's forefront, sometimes it's <laughs> in the back. Like we're talking about pain. Um, and whenever we would go to hospitals, it was so annoying because a lot of times healthcare is about how the doctor perceives you or how important they think your symptoms are. Or a lot of times you have to self-report what's going on with you. And it's like they constantly put you in a loop. So you go to the ER, the ER doctor says, oh, go see your primary doctor. You go see the primary doctor. Um, and sometimes even before you get to your primary doctor, it'd be a couple of months. The primary doctor says you have to go see a specialist. The specialist is three, like three to two months out appointments. And through all this time, you are in pain. And so when we would be sitting there, Johar would be like, yeah, my pain is, um, you know, 11 out of 10. And I'm just, you know, she's saying it in the most calmest tone. And she says, you know, I just want to take, she would say, I want to take my head and I want to bang it against the wall. That would give me relief. She was so good at hiding, but this time it was too much. Her body couldn't do it anymore. I didn't have, I didn't have, I didn't understand what was going on with my body and why it was that bad myself. Like I was more trying to ignore it and pretend it's not there. And, like, manage it secretly is, like, pretending, like, I'm fine. I'm fine. It was my anthem. And so with my sister, it was, like, I just knew what, the things that helped me with, like, like feel better. And so I didn't have to explain to her. It didn't have to make sense for her in order for her to do it for me. And I think, and I, I was so used to just diluting and, like, anything that I was experiencing. I would talk about it very lightly. So I... Somehow, when I'm sometimes in the clinic, I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Or I leave the office and I remember the thing that I was wanted, that I came in for. I'm going to tell you, long story short, the first season of my crash was that. And in that crash, I only addressed, like, the health, the physical health crisis. Nothing else. Uh, even though I knew there's a lot of emotional pain that I was grieving and that I was experiencing, like I was processing, but I only dealt with just the physical. I was very focused on like, like I genuinely could not think past. Like I was just pain, 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 but pain, pain, pain. I have to be in the classroom and still take my classes. Alhamdulillah. Like I had ease with like a specific medication that I got at that time. Like, and that worked finally. And also 
I had like somebody else give me advice about like, hey, you know, basically her when she got her wisdom removed, that it like the tooth pain that she had like was contributing to triggering her migraines. And when she got it removed, like she saw like a significant decrease in the number of like episodes she had. And so I was like, you know what? Let's go check it out. The funniest thing is though, when I first went to the do- emergency, I told him like I also oftentimes like I have this specific tooth pain that also happens like prior and throughout when I'm having my migraine episodes. He told me that has nothing to do with that has nothing to do with your teeth. Alhamdulillah, Johara listened to her friend rather than that ER doctor. And she was able to see a significant decrease in her migraine episodes. And then came the time when her plan that she's been working on for two years finally came to fruition, which was her great escape to South Korea. If you are Somali or if you grew up with strict parents, the idea, the simple idea of studying abroad is hilarious. <laughs> My mom was the definition of a strict parent. But she she didn't even let us have friends, you know. It was like, <laughs> I remember the first time that I told my mom I was going to hang out with friends. She came with me. It was weird. It was awkward. She sat in the corner of a restaurant. And I was like, and this was my high school. I think end of the high school, like, we went out to eat. And so, <laughs> when I tell you my mom is very overprotective, she's very overprotective. And Johara always used to surprise me because she would, she was brave like that. She would dare to do the impossible. She would dare to go abroad and travel for four months by herself. And luckily, my mom was gone to Somalia, so she didn't have to do it face to face. I knew from when I started college, it's funny because I told my mom then, I was like, mom, I'm going to study abroad oh, in my junior year. So you were year. preparing her for months, maybe years, years, years maybe year. years uh, from so cause, first cause you, year. Because that, that's the thing, right? With religious households, <laughs> you, you can't break it to them all at once. It's never going to fly. It's something you got to continue to rep, uh, <laughs> repetitions. Well, I repeti- yeah. like repetitions is what's going to save you. So it's like, you got to slowly... Leaving. I'm leaving Hoya. I'm going here, mom and dad. This is where I'm going. It's going to happen. Mm. And so you were doing that for years because you knew it was going to come. But my mom was so against it. Like, I think, like, initially, like, oh, my God. When I first brought it up, she said, like, we don't do that. <laughs> we don't do that. I was like, I need to do it for my major. And she said, change your major. Oh, wow. As your mom was not having it. In every step, like, you know how they say the mother's intuition? When I first applied, my mom that day, she was on the phone talking to me. She was in Somalia still. And Muna happened to be traveling abroad for the first time. And uh, my mom was like, Allah, if I was there, I would have stopped her. I would have confiscated <laughs> her passport. And and then she's saying this about Muna and Muna because she knows Muna was leaving, right? While we're having that discussion, she's like, I, need, I have a feeling Aliga, that you're going to, I'm also going to say the same thing. And you're going to call me, oh, yeah, I'm in Korea. That was the day I submitted my application. Like, Oh, deposit. my God. Did she <laughs> made that comment to you? She made that comment the oh, day I knew. submitted the application. And I was like. Her soul knew. Her soul the knew. The way I just like. Ah, ha, ha, ha. 
So then closer to the time I, this is like end of January, closer to the time I had to leave, uh, my mom, like, uh, she called me about it and then and she was like, did you cancel it? She was like, I just have a feeling. Ismail was my younger brother. It was joking around about you probably buying your ticket. Oh, no. Wallahi, that was the day I bought the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! The day I bought the ticket. Oh was my the, god! The day my mom makes it, I don't know how. Like I'm literally thinking, bro. This you must no have been shaking it. You must have been shaking. You were like sweating. <laughs> like, what the heck? What is going on? I was like, there's no way she doesn't know. Like, yeah. Like by the time I told her, like it was a month in advance, and I was like, I was like, it's like I it, I told her as something like I have to do. Like there's no way I can back out of it. Because the reality was, like, oh, the school already had paid, like, the tuition. And so, like, it's not, like, I would not attend school for the semester. And to give you, like, my mom, she was like, just don't go to school that semester. <laughs> oh, my. Wallah, your mom wasn't joking. She Wallah, was not joking she was with the, nobody. Like, she was no, Wallah, she was very serious. serious. She was very serious. And even, like, closer to the date, my dad ended up traveling for, like, a week. So, like... So, he wasn't there either? He wasn't. He was also uh, oh, so out cab. of town that time. No, so, and said, I'm Allah thinking... He, 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 he facilitated the gratitude. I'm packing casually. Like, mm-hmm. I'm getting ready. Like, like you're comfortably. You're putting your socks. You're putting your shoes in the suitcase. Yeah. And the other aspect is, like, I already had told my... Like, my like I had told my grandma, like... Like, she knew everything. So, like, mm-hmm. except she knew everything except the time that I was leaving. Mm-hmm. I thought my dad was out. So then he ended up coming back a little earlier. And mm-hmm. he came that Sunday. And I leave on Wednesday. So he comes back Sunday. Oh, no. And then I'm just, I wake up. And then my dad asks me, when are you leaving? And uh, I, I don't know. You know, when you wake up, you're just, like, your brain is not really fully yeah, like, clocked back yeah. in tell you like this is this is federal <laughs> information do not share this information i was like um wednesday Allah. and then i just hear my mom screaming from the phone <laughs> so then yeah i kind of exposed myself in that way and so um my dad is like more chill and laid back he's like i thought we talked about it i thought you're not gonna go and I'm like, um, we did talk about it. It wasn't a discussion. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> you shouldn't go, like, period. And so my dad sent me to go, like, bring my stuff back. Because I told him I had, like, my documents and stuff at school. Yeah, that's when I left. When Johanna says she left, she means she, like, ran away. Uh, basically, she left to a friend's house and decided to stay there until Wednesday when she could get on the plane safely. Um, but her stuff was back at home. So <laughs> the person who became the smuggler was me. I was the only sibling here. And to be honest, uh, a lot of times I didn't participate. Well, actually I did. Um, but in order to keep my own sanity, I just pretended like I didn't know anything to my family. I was like, I don't know where she went. And my dad would come to me and be like, where's your sister? What's going on? I haven't seen her in two days. I was like, honestly, I don't know. I keep calling her. She's not answering me. It was a, it was a performance. And I think what mattered most to me was after seeing her in so much pain, I wanted her to have that break uh, in Korea. She's been looking forward to it for so long. And so I was down, whatever it took, 
to get her out. Luckily, it was my dad that's here who's much more chill. If it was my mom, she would be driving around the Twin Cities looking for her, probably filling out a police report, going like, my daughter is missing. Uh, Somebody find her. (laughs) And the scariest thing was, I overheard my mom and my dad talking, and my mom said she was coming back on Wednesday, the day that Johara was going to be leaving. We didn't know the time. She said she's coming 1 o'clock. I didn't know if it was 1 a.m. or 1 p.m. So I tell Johara this, and I'm like, bruh, you better be incognito at the airport. So luckily, my mom ended up landing landing at 1 p.m. My sister traveled that day at 6 a.m. And my mom, at first, although she was completely angry against and against it, um, once Johara talked to her, she kind of calmed down and she started asking her about the classes she's taking there. And it was like, there's nothing she could do about it anymore. And Korea was so good for you, wasn't it? Oh, it like- really was. And I think it was the break that I needed from at least stressors in terms of like, it was like a chill version of college. Like I was just taking classes that I liked. I was taking evening classes, electives, you know. I was really vacationing, mm-hmm. basically full-time, studying part-time. And so it was a really good break from everything. And I think it was the it was like a good self-reflection time because it was the first time where I got to have really like full autonomy and like without thinking about how others were going to perceive me in like choosing the clothes that I wear and how I cover and veil and like even praying is like really up to you and so in a way I was really challenged because I I was so dependent on the environment like kind of making it auto like autopilot almost like everybody's it's prayer time in the house like you know you just join uh and I went to an Islamic school and I in like high school and so like there's that, that there's always a lot of things that made it like convenient I had different things that made it like that was made Dean a part of the day-to-day and so for the first time it was like it was a big challenge on my end and I struggled a lot and at the same time I feel like I grew connected to Allah a lot more at that time and I feel like it was significant because coming back I came back to the environment that I was in before and at the same time is like even when I was in Korea, like, I just, uh, like, I got down all, like, my health stuff, but I knew I was still having, like, different health challenges that I didn't have, uh, like, I haven't had diagnosed or had treatment for. I just knew this is what I experienced on the day-to-day. And so, when I came back, I knew I was like, okay, I have health insurance. Like, let me continue. And so, that's what I pursued, like, to like go to like go to the uh, physician and like uh tell them my symptoms and stuff so that they can figure out what else was going on right uh particularly during that time I switched back to living in I went from living by myself to living in a like a large family household again everybody's on a schedule and like Everyone was adapted to their own, uh, to each other's schedule, but it felt like mine was like not on everybody else's. 
So being in Korea for four months and a half, Johara was able to build a routine um, that consisted of her living on campus. She was able to get things done. And routine was very, very important to her. The thing is, like, knowing, like, about my, like, being autistic and having ADHD is something, and, like, generally being neurodivergent, it's something I found the language for in the past year versus, like, so at the time, I was just struggling and I was just thinking something's wrong with me. Like, I don't know why I'm struggling with the basic stuff. Like, oh, I didn't eat all day or, like, things that just because I didn't have a routine around them or, like, like the things that, like... Yeah, basically, if there wasn't, like, consistency or, like, there was changes, I would just, like, skip the the routine related to that. I was always figuring out different coping stuff to help me figure out, like, how to do the things that I want to do. But I didn't know why I needed to have additional coping things, if that makes sense. So Johara began to write her own playbook to be able to survive and help herself get to the goals that she wanted to do. One of the things my mom always used to comment on was the fact that Johara, whenever she was doing something, she always used to have somebody on the phone with her, like almost 24-7. It was kind of odd for my mom. But for Johara and her ADHD, which was undiagnosed at the time, having somebody there helped her focus on the task. And she would write herself note cards, uh, post-it notes, she would help herself in different ways to be able to achieve what she wanted to achieve. There was another side that Johara wasn't dealing with. If you think about a balloon that somebody is blowing into, and as they blow and blow and blow, there comes a moment when that balloon pops and everything that's inside that balloon comes out. Uh, but I was also carrying the the heavy self-hatred load of, like, me internalizing all these, like, age zero to 20-something of uh, hatred directed towards me that I just compiled. Like, I never processed, like, any of these experiences. I'm just, like, like I, I just want to, like, the baggage that I was carrying around. And I used to, like, wonder why is it, like, why, like, why can't I, like, why is it easier to be hateful towards myself than, like, be kind? So, like. Yeah, and compassionate. Yeah, like, it was yucky. It was, like, if I told myself, oh, you're beautiful, I'd be like. (laughs) No matter how much I knew how I was supposed to feel about myself, like, how I actually felt about myself was a lot different. Like when it came to when you start struggling, when I started struggling really with my mental health, it was like, oh, my God. It's like my brain like brings back everything that was unaddressed. And uh, particularly I've taken note that like I had like right before my period, like I used to it used to be so like the experience I had was like so intense Johara got diagnosed with a syndrome called PMDD, which is premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is a severe um, form of PMS. Um, It can manifest in 
severe irritability, anxiety, depression, the week or two before your period starts. And in Johara, there was also a, a symptom of lack of sleep. She couldn't sleep for like sometimes two, three, four days. But this was a time where it was undiagnosed. So Johara was having all the symptoms, but didn't know what the cause of it was. Or if it's something that other people are experiencing as well. Because this would happen every period cycle continuously. And so these symptoms, severe depression, severe anxiety, um, were just part of her daily routine or monthly routine, I guess. And she went a while without addressing them. But one time she had a trigger that woke her up to how severe her situation actually went. And I want to give a trigger warning here um, in case you missed the one in the beginning. Um, the following conversations will talk about suicide, you know, suicide ideation. And so just to give you a warning. My wake-up call was, so I want to just like, narrate it in a way that the day I remembered this day it was one like my sister's birthday so mind you I'm just carrying a baggage of like life experiences memorized HD <laughs> part of being autistic is like not everybody has like mem full memory recall but I think for me personally my brain just memorized excessive detail like I can like recall a lot from my childhood and stuff but in a way, there was like a segment and all the negative life experiences was just kind of put in an area where I don't think about, but more like, but it contributed to how I felt about myself. But I didn't actively think about those unless it was like I was really in a dark head space and my brain is like saying, oh, yeah, I remember this. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I had an incident in which like I was being like open and vulnerable about asking like a person they weren't like harmly intending intending like what they say but they were just being like i know uh basically it was specifically me telling them oh something they said hurt my feelings and they told me like i don't care <laughs> and then I, I was caught off guard because this is somebody that i didn't have like my guard up with or like somebody that i didn't overly analyze it was somebody like i felt like myself around when i experience that it was interesting because it was my first like trauma trigger in a way and mm. it felt like pandora box open mm -hmm. <laughs> unlocked i recall when i like you know because i also pretended at that time i wasn't affected by those words but i remember when i went to the bathroom i was like crying mm -hmm. and i was thinking like why did you make me think i mattered like like i'm worth something which is like interesting because then I framed my self-worth like based on who cared versus that I'm inherently have self-worth yeah. and I felt like I wasn't in that moment when it first happened I wasn't seeing the person I wasn't in the space that I was I was literally visually experiencing like different times 
like different like faces and like like I was just you were having a flashback of everyone that told you that you didn't matter it was like and it it, it came to a boiling like point it felt like I could feel everything all at once you know all the things I didn't process yeah it was just like and so it put me I felt like I was back to scratch like you know all the like throughout college I kind of built some level of sense of self-worth and it felt like flat after that day like it was like i could like i was everything that i didn't think about was active i could remember everything so after that incident like i was you know i wasn't able to clock that this person you know that i never had any doubt about like felt this type of way oh my god i could be wrong about everyone and so Mm -hmm. it made all social like engagements like feel like i was rememorizing people from scratch because at this point what you thought you knew you didn't know at all exactly because if you couldn't <sighs> if you couldn't peep the one the one person that you didn't have your guard up mm-hmm. and she like opened those reopened those like wounds and they came back and you started to question all your relationships You're like, like oh my God, i didn't it I was like i wasn't able to because re- re- you know i trust your already, own trust your own opinion yeah it was like i already didn't know i could like you know i already knew that I could miss like social cues of like people getting upset and things like that. But so and this person, though, imagine like you already knew that you were shaking it in those social cues and and and, and maybe a, of your perspective of people. But when you mm. thought you were dead set on one person, you thought you knew them, mm-hmm. and then you come to find you didn't. Then what 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 foundation are you standing on? And it 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 was. How could you like, trust yourself again? So after this incident, like I didn't know what to do. Like I'm sitting with like full memory of all like life experiences that i you know was just putting to the back and getting over quote unquote and just pushing like past and i recalled the day that i almost like that i had a accidental overdose and wait wait you had an accidental overdose mm. what do you mean like with like prescription uh, drugs yeah and so there's a lot of insomnia that's mm. induced from like just like the hormonal fluctuations mm. and like that and so like I was struggling a lot with just already the level of pain I was in and I recall like I recall like I just want to sleep even if I took like sleeping like the like the medicine that I was taking it was supposed to help you fall asleep but mm-hmm. it it was like not budging and it related to like it was like let me tell like three four days that i didn't really sleep sleep so like for me it's like i just i can't handle i just want to sleep but i knew at that time it's like i wasn't very like oh my god careful like i was just like i just i'm gonna take it until i fall asleep and if i'm not sleeping like i'm like i'm gonna take like i was taking more and I remember why were like, you I have a question why do you think you were insomniatic at that point is it because of stress no it's because of the PMDD and yeah. like it affected my ability to sleep mm-hmm. uh you have like it affects your appetite like you have an appetite disturbance sleep disturbance mood mm-hmm. disturbance mm-hmm. like I like it's really a roller coaster from a first mm-hmm. person experience mm-hmm. I feel like you go from like functional to like what what is what like just fully yeah. like out yeah uh everything like even if you're doing everything same it's like your mood is like 
zero zone. But I had other different traumatic experiences that happened to me during that time. And so, like, you were it was already like, down. You were already down bad. Mm-hmm. So you're it was sad. like, it added. <laughs> so, the max. The, yeah. So basically, the, that thing, how, uh, basically, fuck your, your emotions. And like, and then on top of that, you were sad about the uh, certain events going on. Yeah. Like, you're already sad. Like, barely you're <laughs> processing on. and dealing yeah. with whatever I was, like, and you, like and experiencing in real life. And on top of that, you weren't sleeping. Oh, and so, the thing is, oh my God, uh, he, there's aspects of like, I was maxed out emotionally, physically. Also, like my physical health was like, like worse than, it was at its worst as well. Like that's the time it took another dip. But it's interesting because I didn't think about that time period. And when I was dealing with more, like I was experiencing more discrimination, like in school because of like my health things like and so like the whole season i had pretty additional things that just exacerbated what already was beyond was already, the max yeah it was already the max and so you started to so take so i the- was just it was just that one day that i was recalling like like there's a difference like people who have you know time like attempted suicides and stuff like this different some people literally write it out this pre like pre, like planned things and there's there's different things different ways in which like you know you almost cross over yeah uh for like based on the person but for me that experience like i could not sit there and think no it's not it is like out it's just coincidental it was very much related to the state of mental and physical well-being I was in. Really, I wasn't thinking through, okay, if I take this much, my body's going to, or what's the max? I'm I wasn't thinking die. about those. I was like, I'm, I'm still awake. It was so out of, it's not like something that's in my norm. It was so out of my norm. You're in so much physical and internal pain you that to stop. dying feels like you want that to stop. No, because dying at that point is a relief. Yeah. You know what I mean? It becomes mm-hmm. it becomes a relief and that's subhanAllah, it's just so I'm just so sad to hear that because obviously like you things are bad when dying doesn't seem as scary. It makes me think of this descriptor that I felt like was very validating at the time when I you know, like uh like around those times I used to like, you know, look up you I used to look up memes and stuff, things to help me cope, like at least laugh about it or like feel validated in like what I was dealing with. Um, I think there was one in which like they described it as like people see the person like see a person standing on like a ledge of a window and they don't know that the person is, you know, like they'll tell you, don't jump, don't jump. But you know, that person is looking back to a room that's on fire. And Subhanallah. And I felt like, you know, like yeah. but like at that time, even when you tell somebody, but people care about you. It's like, wh- like, it's like, what's, I feel like that visual shows like. What is it to go back to when that part like, is Like, it's fire. like, it's di- like living yeah. is dying and dying, like at least has an end of something. Yeah, and I think you know, Alhamdulillah, to have been able to get past that day because I remember, I remember the date like the morning after because you know, it was like I it was really intense that whole night like as I was having body shakes and everything, um, 
and but the morning like I remember that day the day after I like all I remember is reading and that surah having an effect on me and like like especially the last ayah that ولم يكن له كفوا أحد like I you know I don't know the English direct like I know the tra- like the meaning but I can't directly correctly translate it but there's none like unto Allah subhanahu wa taala and I was thinking that if I have Allah like I have like I don't need to know everything but if I have Allah like Allah is enough and and so like at that time I remember asking Allah like. I don't know what I'm dealing with. I don't know why I'm dealing with this stuff. I don't know what, like, to what, like, what extent, like, why is it affecting me to extent? And I don't know, like, how serious, like, how serious or detrimental it could be to me. But I made the dua that Allah figures out, like, helps me figure out and gets me to the means in which I get better and then of and have ease. Um, and that was like something that I recall because I felt so helpless at that time. To this day, um, after Johara told me that incident incident that happened of her accidental overdose, it scares me because it it makes me realize how fragile we can be you know and how fragile life is and it kind of woke me up to check in on her more and to not see her as you know this basically this this uh other individual who's just a side character in my life i think it's 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 easy to jump into becoming the savior role but the thing that Johara realized, and I'm, I, I'm so glad, and I pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I thank Allah that she did, was that you have to start taking care of you first. You can't be taking care of other people, assuming someone else is going to take care of you. So she really started to embody that and live that like the biggest thing that happened when I came to realize recall everything and I was in more like I was going through a lot more I knew this time around like I couldn't just pretend it's not there you know all the time we're pushed to like keep going you know like if it's if you're not dead it's not that serious that's the culture in which we operate you know like if it's not if it has, if like even mental health is always ascribed to if you're not Maria like if you don't like if you're not really out of the norm or having behavioral you know ways that it's manifesting in your life like if you're not completely naked running around something that is not a daily occurrence then there's no such thing as mental health which is a big um misconception and I feel like this had made me like it was a catalyst for me to be like whoop I'm gonna I gotta get diagnosed I gotta get an assessment I gotta find out what's going on with me and it became like survival mode but in a way where I was driven to literally improve my well-being so that it's not 
it doesn't get to a point where I'm back where I was. And I was like, I don't want to be there. Like, I don't want to be in that kind of space where I almost lose myself, like, without thought and without no warning. And they really do tell you it's those smiling people that are laughing that slip out of, mm-hmm. like, the the people you least expect that Those just your drop. strong friend. Yeah, your strong friend. The, yeah, the, the people that, happy, like, the last seem... person you think is yeah. usually the ones that, boom, and you're like, oh. oh, my God, I didn't think they were going through all of that. And the thing was, like, I knew what I was going through. So I was like, you know, I don't care. I don't care if somebody else understands it. I don't care. I don't care if it doesn't make sense. If I'm struggling, I am going to save that energy that I was putting towards not looking like it. Like there was a lot of energy I put out to not look like I was in physical pain, not look like the aspect of faith that has given me a lot more resilience is, you know, like a lot, like, like I knew I could overcome it. Like, yeah. I was like, this is my, like my God written this for me personally. Like this is, this is the predicaments I've been given because I could pass them. Not, um, and absolutely. So I thought about it like, okay, sis, this is my baseline. Like, <laughs> this is what I'm working for. If it was yeah, given maybe one person down, it would not have worked. But I was yeah. like, God gives for everybody you. their baseline that they could pass. Like, they could pass. And they have and the capabilities and the tools is, and the resources exactly. to, to, and to I was pass like, them. Yeah. Yes, I'm struggling, but I'm like, it's not, not for free. <laughs> like I used, yeah, I, so, and that's beautifully said. I it's not, it's your not for is, free. It's not free. It, it a is lot not for free. A lot counts everything. It, everything. I, I was like, I really brought me a lot of console. I was like, nothing for free. Like, my bank account is rolling. Like, with the aspects of like, if my body's like constantly in pain and like, you know, mm-hmm. Allah's like, you know, giving expiation for like a thorn prick. It's like, you know, what about? people that have to move day to day and their pain just never stops. And I was like, wow, I said my body's working harder than I am. When Johanna began to advocate for herself, there was um, a sort of internal celebration for herself. But also she realized there were so many other mountains that she had to climb. Not only did she have to fight herself and her brain, she had to fight her family, she had to fight her school, she had to fight ableism, she had to fight her work. There was such a huge war that Johara began to fight for herself. When she said she wasn't backing down, she meant it. And we can't tell that entire story in this podcast. So on the 17th of August, 2021, Johara's birthday, Beautiful Light Studios is coming out with a movie and it's called Invisible. And it talks about Johara's story, her growth, and what happened after she decided to start advocating for herself. I hope I could see you all there. I hope all of you get to see that film and get to really see the nitty and greedy of what it means to be Johara Lula. Thank you so much for listening. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wow, incredible. What a beautiful story. Muna, I'm not surprised. 
Marshall. Um, you're an incredible narrator. And um, yeah, I want, I'd like to, uh, the episode is brought to you by Beautiful Light Studios. I'd love to give a shout out to Muna Sheikh Umar, who produces episode as well as narrated. So you guys, just to say, mashallah, we have, every week we have um, sponsors that donate, um, alhamdulillah, to these episodes. May Allah increase their mizan. We also recently just launched our Patreon page. You guys, if you are benefiting from these episodes, from this podcast, we need your constant support. Inshallah. The cool thing about Patreon is that not only are you donating, um, but you're also getting like behind the scenes footage. You're getting um, audio footage that wasn't able to come on the, was not able to be like in the podcast, but you get, you can, you can listen to them on the Patreon being a, a member of our Patreon uh, page, inshallah, and you'll get all that access, all of that, you know, uh, good stuff that uh, I guess everybody else won't be able to get it, uh, but you will, inshallah. So check out our Patreon page. Um, and yeah, it's popping in there, honestly. Uh, the, the the footage, the hidden footage, the footage that we didn't get to go are always the best. And it, it was so hard for Muna to cut off, but I'm so glad that we're able to kind of recuperate them and still share them, inshallah. So join our Patreon membership. Um, and yeah, we're we're going to be back next week in your ear, in your speaker, telling you a good story.